and welcome to this episode of Tech Talk Radio. I'm Emily Wright, Head of Content at EG, and I am delighted to be joined today by not one, but two experts on the topic in which we are going to be discussing. So I'm joined by Mikkel Bulo-Lensby, partner and co-founder of 2150, and Nicole LeBlanc, partner platform 2150. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to be here. So we are going to be delving into the inner workings of um, what 2150 is all about and also both of your backstories because they're very interesting about where you started and how your careers have progressed and how you've come uh, to to be to be working together on this um, amazing venture um, but let's let's start off before we get into your backgrounds it'll be really good to start off with a very brief overview of 2150 for a bit of context in case there's anybody out there who hasn't heard of what you guys are up to so Mikael could we start with you sure yeah so um 2150 is a uh, urban sustainability tech fund uh, we try to uh, curate the uh, companies that offer the best solutions to some of the biggest problems in the urban environment and here we talk about problems that caused the urban environment to be such a big polluter and such a big part of the problem uh, of the um, imminent climate crisis that we're all facing. Um, so we start with identifying some of these big problems, for example, the problem that concrete uh, proposes to, to the world. And then we try to go out and find solutions that could help us alleviate that problem. And uh, then we, once we've curated some of the best solutions, we try to spread them into the ecosystem uh, such that we basically can accelerate the decarbonization uh, of the urban environment. Uh, and we do that while obviously investing in the companies uh, and while then hopefully helping them to uh, to grow by spreading their fantastic solutions uh, quicker. Thank you very much. And we, we are going to go a bit in, uh, into your background in a minute, as, as I said, um, Mikkel, but you are co-founder of of 2150 so could you just very quickly give me a bit of background on on the inspiration and where that came from and you know how how, how it all came about sure i, I feel like uh, ladies should go first so so so, so maybe uh, nicole should should start with with her background and story and then uh, then i could uh, do mine after it of course nicole let's let's go to you then your background and and, and i think that'll be that'd be very interesting because we should also say that you guys are based in copenhagen um but nicole you you haven't always been based in copenhagen so let's hear your story no i haven't but i love living here so i'm canadian and actually had uh, very parallel processes to what mickle uh and the founders were doing to start 2150 so uh, i was working at uh, Sidewalk Labs, which uh, was developing uh, a proposal to basically redevelop this entire component of Toronto to have a wonderful, sustainable, affordable, you know, kind of neighborhood of the future that was going to really be this um, wonderful uh, development. And as part of that, uh, there's a lot of startups doing really interesting things uh, across prop tech, construction tech, infrastructure, affordable housing, like lots of these different areas. And so one of the things that I was doing there was figuring out how to work with these amazing startups, deploy them in this development, and then also spin out a fund to be able to develop and to invest and then support the development you know, of these companies as they scaled, not only with this project, but in other, other um, jurisdictions as well. And so that was really amazing. And everybody in Toronto uh, all the startups were very excited about it, and uh, we had a number of uh, big groups that were interested in collaborating on that fund with us. 
Uh, however, uh, when Sidewalk decided not to pursue the project anymore, uh, obviously, you know, there was no need for a fund to, you know, support those companies. And one of the things that happened is 2150 had reached out because they had known what we were doing and said, we're doing something similar in Europe. It would be great if we could actually start to share ideas. You know, what's the difference between North America and Europe? What startups are you seeing? You know, are there ways we could work together? And so uh, 2150 actually uh, decided that it would be great to have somebody like me come over once the, the sidewalk project shut down to be able to continue the journey uh, alongside them because it was so aligned with, with everything that I was already working on. And was that an easy decision to make when that call or whatever it was came through saying, you know, we'd like you to come and join us. So, and by the way, are you, are you okay to, to relocate? So my husband and I actually never been to Copenhagen before we moved here. Uh, and so when I sat down and told him uh, about this opportunity, I said, what are the criteria for us to move to Europe? And my criteria was I wanted to continue to cycle to work. Uh, we haven't owned a car in a number of years, and it was a really wonderful lifestyle that we enjoyed. And so we wanted to continue that. And his requirement was that he was able to still play ice hockey as a recreational player. And so there really aren't that many cities in Europe where you can actually cycle to work and play ice hockey five nights a week. Uh, so Copenhagen is actually uh, the perfect mix of those two things. Fantastic. Well, how lucky, how fortuitous that those two things neatly fit into that category and very fortuitous for you, Michael, because it meant that you had you got Nicole over um, a great addition. So um, we're going to talk a bit about, you know, what you guys are up to now um, and a bit more about the fund and how it works. Um, but in terms of your backstory um, and how, you know, 2150 came to be, could we delve a little bit into that, please? Yes, and we were indeed very fortunate, as you put it. Uh, um, and yeah, so so in short, you know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur, uh, so I've always loved to to solve problems. A strong conviction that you know business is is about solving problems, and not just because it's a nice thing to do, but because I think it's a far superior business model. So you know, in the long term, businesses that solve problems, in my mind, clearly are going to outperform, uh, and I think that. Um, I think, you know, quite a few of the challenges that we're facing in the world today uh, are really there because I think we've been through a period where a lot of uh, companies have been lured into a sort of short term shareholder focus, which has caused them to be a little bit less focused on, on, on solving problems. And I think, therefore, many of the problems we see today are really the symptoms of that. Uh, and I've always been a big believer in that, uh, always been... Um, launching various entrepreneurial initiatives. Uh, 16 years ago, I uh, launched a company called Enrup, which is today one of the largest uh, sort of European real estate or urban value chain investment houses. Uh, you know, our, the purpose in, in Enrup is fundamentally to make the urban environment more sustainable, more customer centric and more efficient. And our story uh, was that of fundamentally starting off investing in real estate but being very focused on how do you make real estate better. So basically seeing real estate not as an asset, which I think most real estate investors do, uh, but rather see it as a product and figure out how can you fundamentally make, again, more customer centric, more sustainable and more efficient products that so you can say serve society. And by doing that, you know, also generating in our view, better returns uh, to our investors. And, and on that journey, um, we, I guess now roughly four or five years ago, we we sort of took a step from saying we want to be a leading real estate fund manager to we want to become the world's most competent investor in the urban value chain. So, so we want to address what we see as being the world's biggest product category 
i.e. the urban environment, um, which is now viewed as hugely lacquered industry in that it historically has not been very customer centric in that it is highly unsustainable uh, and that it's actually also a very inefficient value chain. So if you look at the productivity of the uh, real estate industry, it, it's, it's actually have a declining productivity, uh, which obviously means that there are lots of problems to solve. Um, and as we went about uh, sort of changing NREP from being, I always like to say, from being a transactional company with knowledge to becoming a knowledge company with a lot of transactions, because in order to solve for that purpose of making of improving the urban environment, we realized what we really needed was to become the most knowledgeable entity that has most knowledge about how we can do those three things. And then figure out how do you then apply that knowledge into investment strategies. On that journey, we realized that technology was going to be playing an enormously important role in trying to address these three objectives. So IE technology is going to be one of the enablers to make the urban environment more sustainable more efficient and more customer centric. But we had very little technology understanding. And so the idea of us starting to, you know, create basic technology solutions, that, that was very naive. We, we're definitely not going to be world leaders in that. Um, but what we did have was we had a lot of understanding of the problems. So we could see a lot of things that were not working, you could say. And we then started looking at technology companies uh, to see, hey, you know, are there companies who could help us solve these problems? And we realized that that you cannot do as a uh, left hand operation. So actually trying to identify the most useful technology solutions out there, that, that's a full-time job, you could say. Mm -hmm. And we also realized that if we really want to further the purpose of improving the environment, we should not just be curating these technologies for our own benefit. We should rather be identifying them and then trying to spread them, you could say, with all of our peers, because obviously in that way we can accelerate the change that we desperately need. And we therefore thought that, uh, you know, a perfect way of combining that knowledge that we had uh, and the network we have in industry with our desire of driving change was to create a, a new entity uh, called 2150, um, through which we fundamentally could build a global, a world-class team that understands both our industry, understands venture capital investing, and understands how to help entrepreneurs, you know, grow their companies. Um, and uh, we were fortunate that there was a, a lot of other of our peers who, who thought that was a good idea uh, and, and who also were willing to um, be part of this uh, adventure, you could say. Uh, and that obviously means that we today in 2050 not only have great investment minds and have a great understanding of how we can try to help uh, entrepreneurs to grow their business, but we also have you know, great access uh, to basically the incumbents in the industry and thereby can you know, help ensure that these lovely technologies uh, are spread uh, quicker. So, so that, that's sort of how it came about. And the name, is that, is that a date? Yes. Is that, is that... Yeah, so, so uh, uh, I actually, you know, considering the name of NREP, which is obviously not a very good marketeering name, then I think it should be clear to everybody that, I, that, that that's not our key strength. Uh, it has not been branding. Uh, and I always I've always have to believe that, you know, a, a name or a brand is, is what you make it into. Um, but but actually quite a lot of thought went into this. And I think we felt 250 was quite a good name because it combined two things. It combined our aspiration of ensuring that in 2150, the large urban spaces of the world uh, are livable, are sustainable, are inclusive, 
are well functioning. And, and that's, you know, really our purpose. Now our purpose is to source technologies that try to help ensure that that is indeed the case. And then secondly, 2150 happens to be the zip code of the first uh, large urban area that NREP has developed, you could say. So, so this is the, one of the, you know, towns, if you will, uh, that we're very proud of, you know, having really had responsibility for, for developing, which actually recently was named in, in the monocle of being one of the, one of the best new towns in the world. Uh, so, so, um, so in that way, it also sort of linked, uh, you know, the 2150 uh, purpose and the NREP organization, and thereby symbolizes in many ways what, what it is we're trying to do with it. Brilliant. Another another fortuitous uh, thing there, you know, the, the twenty one fifty perfectly dovetailed with the 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 zip code. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Nicole, so we we've talked a bit about your your career path, your journey your journey from from Sidewalk Labs. Um, so obviously the focus here is on su sort of sustainable urbanism. Do you, is do you feel there's enough of an understanding around that within the within the wider world, within the real estate sector, within the tech sector? Um, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, smart buildings or, um, you know, even smart cities, which I'm not sure is quite the same as sustainable urbanism, or maybe it is. Um, do you feel there's enough of an understanding around that? And what does sustainable urbanism actually encompass? So uh, I think everybody understands the concept and everybody understands the need and why we have to you know, move in this direction. But I don't think there's enough information out there about the details behind how to actually execute against it, how to hold yourself accountable and how to continue to evolve that over time. And so what we talk about is urban tech. Uh, so there's lots of, you know, great elements of prop tech or construction tech, but urban tech really encompasses all of that. And so we're focused on cities where, you know, you can look at the stats, you know, the majority of people are immigrating to cities. Uh, we're building an, a, an equivalent of a New York City every month somewhere in the world. Uh, you know, cities use two thirds of the global energy resources, like all of these things. So we're really focused on, you know, making effective change in cities. And what we also have to do is understand how do we ensure that everything is has sustainability by design sort of embedded in it. And, you know, that's going to take time, but it also you have to start somewhere and be able to uh, grow with that, you know, over time. And so what we think about, you know, with our fund is, you know, there's kind of like this Venn diagram of company of, of funds that are entirely financially motivated. Um, and there's this other circle of funds that are entirely impact focused. And we actually, you know, work at kind of the intersection of those two things where we don't feel you actually have to sacrifice financial returns in order to also have impact. And, you know, green premiums exist. Everybody knows about green premiums and, you know, a lot of progressive, you know, customers are willing to maybe pay that green premium, particularly in the developed world where, you know, uh, you know, major cities or, you know, very successful real estate developers can pay, pay the green premium to be able to help scale companies. So then actually it can the cost can come down so it can, you know, more be more widely distributed. But I think, you know, what we need to do is really focus on the data and really focus on how we can find you know, solutions that we can deploy now and, you know, how do we track the ROI? How do we continue to, you know, monitor that over time? Uh, one of the things that we did at 2150 is we've hired a head, a head of sustainability and he's recently published an impact framework. And there's still lots of work to do, but here are the different frameworks that, you know, different groups need to be able to understand, you know, how you can actually measure your progress against, you know, here are the different metrics that you need to start tracking. Here's how you can continue to, you know, understand how to, um, you know, measure against them and, and continue to evolve. So there definitely needs to be a lot more information, uh, a lot more data and a lot more collaboration. So we can actually get to um, a world where this has become the norm and everybody not only understands uh, the why, but also understands the how. Mm. 
Yeah, and I would just add on that. Just uh, I think that that I think on on the analogy of sort of you know impact and and financial return, I, I think the way we see it is actually that you know the impact is going to enhance financial returns and reduce mm-hmm. risks. You know? So so mm-hmm. and again coming back to that whole strong belief that that business is about solving problems, and and again if we just take you know, concrete uh, that we discussed earlier, you know the concrete is today responsible for eight percent of the global CO two emissions. If you do believe which I think is fortunately now uh, no longer a religious question, but more like a, a really science-based fact that we have a huge problem <laughs> with excess CO2. And, and then obviously at some point that will be priced. I mean, uh, and, and we, you know, we're obviously all hoping that there will be more clearer CO2 uh, taxes, you could say, or, or incentives. Uh, I think actually incentives would be a better solution. But that when that happens, then obviously, um, you know, the, the two companies that we've invested in so far that are enabling the use of concrete that have a much, much, much lower CO2 footprint is obviously going to be a commercial asset. You know? so, so again, just to sort of make it very low practical that, that, that I mean, we truly believe that there is, this is a, it's not a, it's not a trade-off. I think for many years, there was this notion that, you know, if you wanted to do good for the environment, then it had to be bad for business, you know, and 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 I, I never understood that. I never ever understood why should that be the case. I mean, in the long term, it always has to be such that that those companies that create problems are going to sit with the liability, and those mm-hmm. companies that solve problems have to have a major competitive advantage. It, it, it's always been baffling to me. <laughs> well, it seems like finally everyone else is catching on, so that's that's good news. I wanted to ask you both about some of the inner workings of the investment side of things, how that works, and what you're looking for. Um, but before I do, sort of a, a sort of a, a slightly broader question, which is how far reaching? How far reaching is the fund? So we actually have a global investment focus, and so we have companies uh, now in one, two, three, four, five, six countries, I think. And uh, we definitely, you know, have our, our focus on Europe. And for the companies that aren't based in Europe. We are helping them scale into Europe and really helping them unlock the European market. Excellent. Thank you very much. But I think because we in particular are going for the best solution to a problem, again, because we start with the problem and then we try to go out and find the best solutions, you know, to Nicole's point, obviously, if if the best solutions happen to sit in Singapore, where we made one of our investments, mm-hmm. you know, then obviously we're going to do it there. But I think one of the other criteria we have is we need to see that the company's trajectory will be different if we are, you know, on the cap table. Mm. Um, so obviously, if you are an Asian-based company and you, you know, for odd reasons, uh, only want to be in uh, India, and I just take an example, well, that then, you know, maybe our possibility of adding a, as much value will be lower, and therefore it's a little bit less likely, you know, that, that we would be a relevant investor. So if you look at all the investments that we've made, where the companies are headquartered outside of Europe, then exactly to Nicole's point, these are all companies who have a big interest in then entering the European market where we obviously can be very, very helpful. Thank you very much. You mentioned there that you sort of look for this, you sort of thinking about the, the solutions and looking for the best solutions. So how how does that work in terms of investment, in terms of what you're looking for and how uh, potential entrepreneurs and businesses are approached or, or, or they make the approach? How, how, does, how does it all work and so the nuts and bolts side of it? So we have a problem-driven uh, approach to 
to what we're working on. And one of the interesting things we have are we have a number of investors that are like NREF, where they're real estate developers, they're construction companies, they have physical assets that they're actually managing. And so they are actually great for customer discovery from that perspective. So we're working closely with them to understand what problems that they have, what opportunities they're trying to you know, capitalize on, and what types of solutions they need to be, basically be able to address that. And so by understanding their problems in greater detail, we can actually, you know, I say we become hunters instead of gatherers. So we're able to go out and look for amazing companies. So, for example, you know, we did a deep dive into the modular construction space. It's really interesting. Everybody wants to understand, you know, offsite construction and wood and CLT and these types of things. So we actually did an analysis of that whole industry. We worked with a number of our investors to understand if they've been working with any companies in the space, what their goals were for that. And then we went out and identified a number of, of startups that were um, addressing some of those issues. And we ended up investing in one uh, company that that does that. And, and now uh, the investors were able to sit in on the due diligence and provide us feedback as potential customers. And now that we've made the investment, uh, some of them are actually adopting that technology now. So we're basically trying to create this circularity um, to our whole ecosystem so that we're collectively solving these problems as a group because it takes, you know, it takes a, it takes a village in the sense that, you know, we definitely want to be able to ensure that you know, it's not just digital innovation, it's physical innovation, it's policy innovation, like how do we collaborate to make sure that we're actually solving these problems together and enabling the startups to scale to be able to do that. So that's a, a real core component to what we're doing. Thank you very much. And so you mentioned um, the modular there, um, Michael, you've mentioned concrete. Um, is there anything else that you guys are particularly focused on at the moment? I mean, because that would obviously sort of give a bit of an indication into sort of areas that you feel are, well, I suppose, key problem areas. Um, and also some of the, the the companies, startups, entrepreneurs out there that you're going to be eyeing up or hunting, as, as Nicole might say. Yeah, so so we are quite uh, curious individuals and, and as I started off with, there are a lot of problems. I presume <laughs> you said curious there rather than furious. It sounded like furious, but did you oh, say yeah, curious? No, we're, we're very curious, yes. We're very curious individuals. But we're also um, furious about these problems too. We're also <laughs> furious, yeah. We're curious and furious. Um, and there are so many problems to attack. So, uh, sorry, my phone here. Um, so, so there's quite a long list, but I think some of the ones that are sort of, um, that are currently high in our, or where we have been working on deep dives or where we have done deep dives is, you know, energy and grids. Uh, it's on ESG analytics. It is on um, biodiversity. Uh, it's on cooling, which is a huge uh, also a problem in the world and which obviously is gonna increase given what's happening in the world. Uh, it's on carbon capture uh, and storage. It's on air quality. It's on, um, I think I already mentioned biodiversity. But but just to name a few, so so but yeah. this list is obviously continually uh, involving and, and it is you know we sort of choose these different deep dives or research areas that we want to dip, dig into that are sort of calibrated with our ecosystem. But then obviously there's also the the bottom off you know that we get approached by a lot of entrepreneurs who are doing super exciting things and and sometimes we decide okay let let's put this deep dive on hold and let's start with this deep dive instead because now we actually have suddenly a super interesting company and uh, so so let's try to do the deep dive on that. Um, so that we sort of uh, can evaluate it. So, so, so I think as with any business association, it's a combination of sort of top down and bottom up. Mm. Um, and how would you characterize a backable tech company or, or entrepreneur? What is it that you're looking for beyond, 
beyond the solution to the problem, which is obviously key, um, and you know that that goes without saying. What else are you looking for? Are you looking at the individual? You know, what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think we we, we do the the very classic uh, VC uh, you know investment thing, which is all about you know you need to see that there is a, a big addressable market. Uh, you need to see that there is a team that we are, you know, incredibly impressed by, uh, and who we believe can basically, you know, solve the huge problems that it is to build a entrepreneurial company. There's always going to be lots of, of 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 unforeseen problems that you need to be able to navigate, you know, and people issues. Um, and then I think one thing that maybe is a little bit different. So I think in, in, by by and large we do the exact same things as any other uh, sort of global professional VC. I think where the two differences come from is again this problem-based approach. So again, starting off with trying to identify the biggest problems and then finding solutions out. And then the other thing is that we generally only invest once there is a product, you would say, because you could say the value of our ecosystem um, is really highest when you have something that we can sell to the ecosystem, you could say no. Um, because I mean, obviously, one of the problems with change of, of getting incumbents to do things in a new way is that they don't have time. So, so you know, when I, uh, you know, uh, found one of the first technology companies from an NREP context that was relevant, I think, for NREP, you could say, no, then, then I went to our construction department and I spoke to them about this amazing thing that, that, uh, that they could use called SpaceMaker. And, you know, uh, I think because they felt they had to listen to me, they sort of listened to me and said, oh, that's exciting. And then the moment I had left the room, I think they all said, okay, I hope he doesn't come back because, you know, we're, we're really busy. We don't have time to be disturbed with this stuff, no? So a big part of our job is actually to really understand within these incumbents, uh, you know, who are the ones that actually are willing to, to try new stuff. Um, and for us to have that credibility that when we come with something that we've curated, then they know it works. They know it's it's a very low likelihood this is going to be bad use of their time, and they know it's going to be good for their internal evaluation of performance. You could say no, um, and that's obviously hard if it's just a, an idea. You know, mm. so so you could say if you look at where we make most investments, it, it is not at the seed stage. It is basically you know uh, at at more of the scale up uh, stage. Again. If we then end up, um, you know, having a big problem and we see that the absolute best team and solution is at a little bit earlier stage, we would still do it because then we think we can obviously still help them in terms of then actually really formulating and pricing and, you know, uh, designing the product stuff that is easy to use for the ecosystem. But generally speaking, we put a high premium on being able to basically say, hey, this, this we can evaluate that it works. So we know that when we come to all of these uh, you know, incumbents in our ecosystem, they will basically say, great, we're ready to use it. I mean, that neatly brings me on to my next question. And actually, Nicole, you mentioned it too, I think, about the ecosystem. And that is, um, you know, how real estate, the role that real estate can play in making sure that, that tech is successfully implemented. And obviously, you have a, an ecosystem of your own, which you're utilising. Um, so it would be good to get your opinion on that, both in terms of, you know, what, you, what, how you guys do it, although I think you've touched on it a little bit, but a bit more detail. But, but I suppose the big question is more broadly, more widely out of the, you know, the system that you guys have got going, how, what can the real estate sector do to play its part in offering up the opportunity or having the, the having the time to, to sort of listen and take this stuff on board and actually implement it? 
Um, I don't know if he wants to take that question. It's to both of you. So I can answer. There's a, there's a couple of things the real estate industry can do. So the, the first one is exactly what our ecosystem is doing and being customers uh, of these technologies and being uh, like, like very cu customers in the sense where they provide feedback. So, you know, a lot of our real estate partners uh, will be a customer. They'll work in a really collaborative way with the, with the startup or the scale up company uh, to be able to, um, to implement, you know, whatever their solution is. It might need some tweaking. It might still have a few bugs in it, but having the patience to be a, cus a collaborative customer in that sense. Uh, however, maybe not every real estate uh, group or construction company, you know, has the, the ability to do that right off the bat. They might need to kind of have a, a little more of a, a slower approach to it. So even just taking meetings and providing feedback to these customers, uh, being able to figure out, you know, where they could eventually fit. I think it's very important when dealing with startups is to be very upfront and say, we are not going to be your customer. It's going to take at least 12 months for me to do this because some startups, you know, don't really have a lot of cash and they're investing a lot of their resources in a particular customer relationship. So they need to know, you know, if you're a near term customer, a late term customer, what the value of those are. So the more a real estate or a large customer can be upfront with those startups, the more helpful it is. And um, even just providing them feedback as to, you know, when you get to X point, that's when I can actually be your customer. So doing that, I think, is really important. Uh, you know, investing in, in some of these startups is also very helpful. Um, so even if maybe the the company proper can't do it, maybe some of the, the, the partners or the staff can actually invest and use that industry expertise. I also think uh, participating in acceler accelerators and incubators, uh, being able to, you know, mentor startups without maybe any type of commitment is also quite helpful so that they can understand, okay, when I get to this point, I know that, you know, you're actually probably a, a good customer for me, but until then I need to go off and, and do these other things because it's not just a matter of, I'm going to sell you my product. It works yes or no. And we continue to adopt it or not. Uh, there's a lot of kind of like iterations that need to happen in between. So just making sure that there's a clear process that's communicated around that, I think is very helpful. And I think then adding, I think your question, Emily was, uh, maybe beautifully addressing both obviously entrepreneurial side and the VC side and then the the urban you know the the incumbent side you could say and from the incumbent side perspective I, I think it's really quite simple it's about setting some very clear goals uh, as to creating sustainable product as a success criteria you know so so that could either be done by pricing so in Inmap, for example we, we've created an internal price on CO2 you know, so that if you're an investment manager you know, you are essentially getting rewarded uh, if you reduce CO2 financially, you know, so, so it fundamentally aligns. Um, well, actually, you know, maybe just an anecdote, it actually a little bit came about because, uh, you know, we were hoping for a CO2 incentive, you could say, from a regulatory perspective, and, and, and that didn't come about, you know, locally in, in Denmark to begin with. And, and then we were just contemplating, okay, why, why actually, if we really want it, why don't we just impose it on ourselves? Uh, because in that way, we obviously start regulating behavior in, in the simplest way, which is uh, in terms of, of sort of uh, financial incentives. Uh, so I think that's a simple way to do it. No, you could basically ensure that every project you do has some very clear targets and that that can be connected to financials or not. Thank you very much. You've both mentioned uh, more than once, actually, throughout the, the conversation so far, collaboration um, and that's something that actually so Nicole and I've discussed that in the past and I, I've you know thought it was a really 
important approach to, to investment and funding and business and progress, actually. Um, and it'd be really good to go into a bit more detail on that. I know that the the view at 2150 is very much that collaboration is really crucial, it's really important, um, and it's going to play a vital role in, in actually moving things ahead at any any kind of great pace. Is this a vision, a view, an ethos which is shared enough by other other companies? Do you think whether that be other VCs, real estate firms, tech companies? What how how are people handling the idea of collaboration right now in this field? Would you say? Well, actually, for my at least personal view is that I think one of the potentially very positive side outcomes of the climate challenge, I think, is this realization that that can only be tackled together. And, and I think, uh, again, business theory, uh, you know, also, you know, when I grew up and was educated, and then there was very much this notion of, oh, you need to, you know, you, know, you need to protect your, your secrets and you can't come up with something and then you need to really like protect it and don't share it with anybody. And um, I think the climate crisis is making very clear that, that obviously we, that, that, that we don't have time for. You know? so, so we need to collaborate. So we need to figure out that we don't all try to invent the same theme plate, uh, and then and, and rather than figuring out how do we actually find the best of these plates, and then really try to to share it. So I think that mentality is really changing, uh, and and I think that you are seeing more and more coming with that approach. And I, and I think uh, Elon Musk has also contributed a bit by by obviously his famous quotes on that uh, that uh, pattern is just a lottery ticket to a lawsuit. Uh, and, and I think this whole notion that if somebody actually comes up with a better solution than you, if, I mean, if you're a purpose driven company and your purpose is like is to de-electrify, oh, sorry, no, to electrify uh, the, 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 the world, you would say if somebody does that better then obviously they should get that uh, benefit of, of being the better ones. And I think that that is something I think that is gaining more and more traction. And I think also because the world is developing so fast, you know, I, I don't have any worries that if you continually invest in the most knowledgeable innovator, you could say, that then, then you know, you, you don't need the patents, in my mind, in order to actually commercial, get the commercial benefits of it. Um, so so I, I, I see a very positive trend in that regard. And it's the same on the investor side of the table where we're collaborating with a lot of funds. Some are focused on sustainability and, and some are not. And uh, it's great to see the different mix of people and backgrounds come to the table to be able to uh, collaborate and tackle some of these problems together. And what's also interesting is more and more smart people and smart money is actually coming into this space. And so we're getting you know, a lot of momentum you know, in the sustainability space because of that. Thank you very much. And I wanted to um, touch on something else that Nicole, you, you, you mentioned earlier, talking about the, the how um as well as the why and actually we've, we've discussed in the past you know the concept of how not why element of, of esg um and i just sort of wondered whether we could talk a little bit more about that um and you know why that's so important that we are if not already shifted very quickly shifting to the how element of all of this and i think nicole you've said in the past we're at the beginning of a of a pretty scary horror film um so just to, you know brighten everyone's day uh, <laughs> if we could go into a bit more detail on that that would be that would be great but of course the how not why element does go some way to addressing that problem so it's not all doom and gloom hopefully 
Yes. So with uh, with 2150, we've made eight investments so far, and all of them are tackling the exact how. And, you know, what we're really excited about is there's a mix of companies in there where some of them have solutions that are immediately deployable. Um, it's really it's really important to have a clear ROI to the customer. So the customer knows it's going to cost me X. I'm going to say Y. This is the payback over X many months, weeks, years, whatever it is. And so it's really great to see like those immediate solutions. And then there's also ones that they're on product number one, but they have a great roadmap that each continuous product, you know, that they're going to be launching gets more and more disruptive. And so there's lots of really great uh, solutions out there. I don't know if it was Mikkel um, earlier that was saying about, you know, concrete and 8% of the global emissions are from concrete. And so, you know, like the, the two companies that we've invested in the concrete space are immediately reducing, you know, emissions right off the bat. And so the more you can just sort of take off of the grid um, immediately, the, the better it is. Um, there's there's all kinds like there's there's it's so exciting to see there's there's so many hows and the one thing that i would say to you know anybody that's on the customer side is just go now just start acting now there's no one you know magic solution that's just going to wave our magic wand and save everything it's going to be you know a number of solutions built on top of one another interacting with each other that's going to solve this crisis so don't wait to build the huge master plan and be able to then have a very clear roadmap as everything that needs to you know take place start now to start taking steps start implementing technologies now it might seem like an immaterial amount of emissions but they add up very 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 quickly uh, so i think like that's the the really really important thing there's things around construction where you know re reducing the amount of you know emissions from concrete and steel and other you know high polluting materials there's uh, electrification switching as much you know over to electric as possible there's efficiency around you know making hvac more efficient and being able to you know reduce leaks so that that actually brings down the the whole energy usage of a building so there's so many amazing solutions out there they're all really great and it's just a matter of starting now starting somewhere and implementing those bit by bit by bit Thank you very much. And actually, you've answered um, another question that I've got coming up. We'll start too. So I'll jump straight to that. And I'd be interested in both of your opinions on this, which is that what advice would you give to companies that are desperately trying to get their ESG houses in order, but they just don't know where to start? So, Nicole, great advice from you there. Just just start, just do something. Um, and uh, Mikkel, would you would you agree with that, that the, the time to the time has come just to to get going, just start, just do something? I think I think actually it would be um, commercially irresponsible to uh, to not do it. So so to put aside the 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 actual you know climate challenge, which I think is in itself a very very good reason. But but I really think it would be commercially irresponsible. I, I I'm 100% convinced, and I and I, you know, I think this is starting to be quite commonly shared that in 10 years this is this is going to be a hygiene factor. Like I mean like so people who are really part of the problem still in 10 years they are not going to have a business. Uh, so I would also say just get started. And again, then obviously it's all about figuring out where can you have the biggest sustainability impact. Uh, you know, so so start with where 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 it has most uh, where you get most bang for the buck, like like you would do with any other commercial effort. And I think that is where the potential internal uh, CO2 incentive, financial incentive, actually you know can be very very helpful, because in that way you are uh, you know outsourcing. The decision of where can you get most impact to the people who are closest to the customers and, and to the to the actual value chain no uh, that, that again is part of the logic for why we're doing it like that and the, the other thing that i wanted to, to ask you and i'm conscious that your, your time is precious but just the last couple of questions um 
how do you cut through the noise? And I think that noise is an issue for everybody. I think it's an issue for your side of the equation. I'm sure that you get a lot of approaches. You hear a lot about different companies doing different things. It's uh, Noise is certainly an issue for real estate. I think that there's a lot of paralysis because companies, even the ones that really want to take action, are thinking, I just don't know where to start. And when I look into it, there's so much information out there. I'm not sure what to trust. Um, and and it, it can make something which is already overwhelming feel almost impossibly overwhelming, I think. So how do you do it? And what advice is there out there for people who are just thinking, I don't, I don't know how to shut out the noise and go with the right option? Nicole, should we start with you on that and then Michael? So on the VC side, when we're looking at companies to invest in, uh, one of the core things we look at is their customer relationships and the customer feedback. And if they don't have a lot, then we can actually generate that through introducing them to our investors and getting their direct feedback and having very targeted discussions about who will use this, what is what is the emission reduction, how much does it cost, how will it be implemented, what else needs to be true. So really kind of going in and really focusing on that customer relationship, I think is very, very key from the investor side. And then the feedback we're getting, you know, from our investors, which Mikkel can speak to a bit more, is, you know, also like, okay, well, we really need to understand, like, there's been three other companies that have pitched us something similar. And what you have to do is don't do analysis paralysis, just put them all up against each other, understand if you implemented each one, what would the outcome be? How would you measure it? And really just, you know, you have to start somewhere. And you know, basically, if you're not willing to take the full jump in, maybe piloting two of them and seeing which one actually provides the best feedback, asking for customer references and seeing if there's a reference project that you can talk to. And so then you can actually see it in action. Yeah, you know, building on that, I think there is a lot of noise. And I think there's a lot of desperation, as you put it yourself, because I think people are seeing, wait a minute, we need to do something. Like we can't just, you know, greenwashing is out of fashion. <laughs> Because, you know, people are realizing, hey, we actually have to see real impact. It's not enough that we, you know, do some experimental stuff. It needs to move the needle. And obviously part of the problem with that is that it's, there is still actually science lacking. So, you know, when you look at the urban environment, um, a lot of people don't do LCA analysis yet. You know? and, and, it, and it also means that for a lot of materials, for a lot of solutions, uh, you don't, you can't necessarily scientifically compare it. Uh, you don't necessarily have a um, agreed upon metric for how to compare. Um, and I think, therefore, I think one of the very important, again, back to the to the collaboration, uh, back to sort of the identification of the best practices and sort of agreeing on standards as to, you know, how can we actually measure so that we can actually start making the right prioritization between this. And I think that comes back to, you know, ESG analytics, which is one of the areas that we have had a deep dive in and where we also made investment. It's trying to say, okay, we, we need to start supporting the creation of standards so that we both, so we all see things in the same way and measure the things in the same way so that we can drive this in the way way. And that isn't very much what 2150's ethos is all about, is we want to be the ones that cut through the noise and help our ecosystem with understanding, okay, this solution is a better solution based on the science that's available today. You could say no. Uh, so, 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 and and uh, yeah. So, so I think that is actually a big part of our value proposition to to our ecosystem. It's exactly that point: trying to cut through the noise and, and trying to base it on the science we have now, and trying to advance the creation of standards and uh, and benchmarking. 
Thank you very much. This is obviously, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a subject um, that you both feel very passionately about, very strongly about. So it's a pretty complex one. And I think that our conversation today has hopefully um, sort of given some pe people not just a lot of information, but some clarity as well and some really, really sound advice um, on what to do if they feel overwhelmed, what to do um, if, if there's just so much noise that you can't, as you say, you don't want the analysis paralysis, you know, how, how you move past that. So I think it's been really, really valuable. And it would be really great if we could just finish off. I'm not going to ask you to predict the future because um, that's not fair. But it would be really good to just get a, a final thought from each of you. If you were going to leave our listeners today with one thought, whether it's an action point, whether it's something for them to, to mull over the next couple of days, what would it be? What would you say to people? Well, I actually think that the uh, the single most efficient thing to do is to start putting a, you know, creating a CO2 incentive. Because I think the beauty of uh, shareholder value and, you know, profits is that it's wonderfully uh, binary. You know, <laughs> it's, it's simple. It's simplifying a very complex world. Uh, and while putting in a CO2 incentive is certainly simplifying a lot of complexity. It certainly will, you're tapping into old habits that, that already exist and thereby, I think, making this transition uh, easier. And I think also forcing people to try to really focus on what really moves the needle. Thank you very much. Nicole. And uh, I was originally an accountant uh, in the first iteration of my career, so I still have a spreadsheet for everything. And what I would say, one of the ways to cut through the noise is to really take a structured approach to, approach to things. So definitely start now, do things now, but make sure that there is a framework in place and that that framework will continue, continue to iterate and evolve as you get more and more sophisticated and you get more uh, deep into, you know, how you can actually start to implement solutions. So it's really important to implement solutions, but it's also very important to have a framework of which to compare them against so you can understand if you've achieved success or not. Brilliant. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Really, really insightful. And although I banned that word for my for my repertoire insightful because it sounds like a so I might even edit that out. Um, but thank you both so <laughs> thank you both so much for joining me today. I certainly found it insightful, which is why I said it. This kind of podcast interview with you guys, where people can actually look at what you're doing and hopefully learn a bit, will be will be brilliant and really invaluable for the industry. So I really appreciate it.